When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you a fan of young adult novels? Have you ever wondered the stories behind the people who wrote your favorite young adult novels? Then join author Eric J. Brown and Alyssa Lube of Netflix's The Circle every other Tuesday on YAOK. Available on all podcasting apps. Woo! you will sing your songs for good times the best times you can't go wrong we'll two step a new step it won't be long when the dixieland is up playing soon you'll be swaying so come on sing along Hello there, boys and girls of America, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Before My Time with your host, Gelsey Laurie. That's right, that's me. This week, you've joined us to talk about none other than the music of World War II. Thank you for entering this broadcast, and let's begin. Each week on the One Hit Thunder podcast, we welcome a special guest to come take a deep dive into a one-hit wonder artist with us. And together, we decide if that artist brought the one-hit thunder or was nothing more than a one-hit blunder. You can find One Hit Thunder anywhere that you listen to podcasts. So hit that subscribe button and join in on the fun each week. So, Gelsey, this is a, another one from the infamous list that you sent at the very start of this podcast. You had a bunch of things written down. And I believe what you had actually written down at the time was the pop culture of World War II. I think we're leaning specifically into the music right now, just based yes. on our little music may that we found ourselves <laughs> music may we had to i was like well world war ii music yeah there's so many things and i think in the future we will touch on those other topics because the pop culture that goes around any war i think is so detrimental and uh, setting up the future of where our culture went and the wars influenced you know the kind of backbeat and themes of all of this and then those things sorry led to the next phase of whatever it be be it mu music movies celebrities um and so on but yeah the music of world war ii and it was fun you know we did the music of vietnam and yeah. so i was like well this is kind of like a fun little anecdote but very interesting before i like dive in having done the music of Vietnam and then now doing all this research for World War II, it's such a different theme. And it's really interesting to see, again, like how I was saying wars affect kind of how we are as a people in our country and blah, 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 blah. Just the, the drastic difference of the quote unquote theme of all the music of World War II versus Vietnam, which... Well, can I make a guess? Of course. Just the assumption from the songs that I know from that time, but obviously knowing that Vietnam was such a game changer in the sense that it was the first televised war. So it was the first mm -hmm. time that people were being exposed to what war really looks like as opposed to the cinematic version of it. So whereas I feel like a lot of the songs of Vietnam were let's get these kids home type songs. I feel like my guess is that a lot of the songs of World War Two are a lot more of like you know, do your part to protect the boys in blue. <laughs> like, exactly, like, exactly. It's much more patriotic. It's much more hopeful and like, we're going to do it. And, you know, I think too, uh, it's not only that Vietnam was the first televised war. That was a huge thing that kind of led to Vietnam being more like the protest theme. And this is more the patriotic, like, yes, let's stand together. But also between the two wars, you know, Vietnam A was like the first time in the U.S. history that we as a people questioned our government. And it was like the first time we were like, wait a minute, I don't trust you. I think that's really the first time in our entire history that really happens. But then also in World War II, it was a lot more clear cut. 
from yes. good guys, bad guys, bad versus evil. And Vietnam, it was just this like really we were being told one thing, but it didn't actually seem that way. And it was kind of this much more gray area, which is also going to cause the confusion, the questioning the you know, but World War II, I mean, everyone was just like Nazis suck. Hitler's a dickhead. Good Let's versus evil. This. Like, yeah, it was just well, so clear cut. Vietnam also kind of built what became the question of every war after it, which it's like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm in the middle of watching MASH right now. So obviously there there is this theme of like, why are we even here with a lot of the people in the Korean War? And, you know, growing up in a post, you know, September 11th world, there was kind of that that idea of like, yes, there was an attack on our soil, but what else are we trying to get out of this? And it led into like, oh, we're trying to claim oil or we're trying, you know, like mm-hmm. there there became a much more from Vietnam on, there became a much more skeptic look at every single war where a lot of people, and this isn't even a, I wouldn't even say that this is a, a political thing. I think it's across the board, no matter how you're voting, there is an element of skepticism of whenever the government mm-hmm. tells you anything of like, okay, but what do they actually want? Cause they never have my best interest in mind. It's always something higher up where we didn't have that skepticism as much in the forties. And like you said, mm-hmm. it, was it was much such more patriotic. A, we were a oh, team. It, we and were. it was a very clear, I mean, massacre is the only word to describe what was happening. So, mm-hmm. you know, it is a much clearer drawn line where it's not even, it's not even an, a, United States patriot patriotic element. I mean, that's definitely there, but it's, it's like you said, it's just straight up. This is evil and we need to stop it mm-hmm. from yeah. happening. I do love the sounds of this era. Oh, like, it's, this, I'm <laughs> so excited. All these songs, like I did grow up with so much of this music. Um, I just wanted to side note, you said you were watching mash. If you ladies and gentlemen have any interest in learning more about mash, check out our previous episode on mash. It's awesome. Okay. Moving on. It, it may um, have been what convinced myself. me. It may have been what convinced <laughs> me to finally sit down and watch mash. And I know, now I, I have the biggest man crush on a, uh, young 1970s Alan Alda, as you should. Anyways, World War II, war, ha <laughs> huzzah. Um, what is it good so, for? Let's go. Quick little rundown if you don't know what World War II um, is. It is a war that went from 1939 to 1945. Also, the war starting in 39. The Great Depression went from 1929 to 1939. So right as we get out of the Depression, we go straight into the World War. It starts when Hitler invades Poland, September of 39. And it grew from a um, destabilized Europe after World War One. So that was left very like shaky and it was the perfect stage for Hitler to rise up and take control. Um, France and Britain declare war on Germany. That's kind of where it gets going. The U.S., we had our support and we were giving a lot of funding to Britain and everything, but we didn't start entering into the war until the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941, and we lose more than 2,300 troops. On December 8th, the U.S. declares war on Japan and Germany declares war on the U.S. because they are also an ally of Japan. So woohoo, we're all in it now. We're all in this together. That is the number one song of World War II, High School Musical. <laughs> um, so we get into um, some music. Before that, um, FDR in, you know, from 1933 to 1939 during the Great Depression kicked off something called the New Deal, which created a lot of new jobs and so many different avenues. But it also focused in on the arts and entertainment. And he hired artists and commissioned a lot of people to write different songs and this and that. And they saw it really showed the value of entertainment to lift a nation's spirit. So we saw that in the Great Depression and that continued into World War II. So I think that really highlighted how important during a rough time that entertainment is. Like I said, I'm that's why I love the industry I'm in. Annegret Fauser, she's a professor of music from the University of North Carolina and um, I love this quote from her. She says, no other event in the U.S. history mobilized and instrumentalized culture in general and music in particular so totally, so consciously and so unequivocally is World War II. Unequivocally. I hate when I have words I can't say. <laughs> you know, I, I really do think that music in any aspect of our history and then again in wars, like we talked about Vietnam, but this 
I feel like music was really the heartbeat of World War II that got our nation together. And generally, you know, there was different, this is the few, first time actually um, music therapy is brought into hospitals for a lot of the wounded soldiers. They did a lot of, they would use classical music because they thought, you know, the swing and big band was too stressful and chaotic for someone that, you know, maybe just lost a limb or so they were starting to bring in classical music into hospitals to help treatment. They um, did some studies, like one nurse would sing Ave Maria to her patients that were in so much pain and it would calm them and their pain level would go way down. And so that started kind of coming to popularity, which um, is really Musical important. therapy is like, fascinating, just in general. Huge. It's fascinating. Oh, it's, it's incredible what music can do. And it's, it is a very powerful healing tool. Um, and also by this point, by 1940, over 80% of Americans have radio. So we still don't have TV yet. You know, that comes more into the 50s. Film exists, but it's like you have to go to the movies. So the big thing coming into everybody's houses is radio shows. And so you have the news and music. And especially when the news at this point is so gruesome and war, it's like the music is was the relief from all of that. And the, you know, kind of a couple of different categories that music went into. There's, you know, the official, it formed the official patriotic mood of the country and how we were going to come together, do your part. And then it also provided refuge from the harsh realities of war. Um, and that's where you get a lot of the high emphasis on songs during this time that are about lovers and dreams and hope. And, you know, and even the songs about wishfully, um, yearning for lovers. It's, you know, kind of has the theme of they're overseas. And so you're wishing they were there, but it still gives hope and love. Um, though there were um, a lot of patriotic songs, there was only 27 songs that were war related themes that were top hits on charts, which is still a lot. I mean, yeah. we don't have that today. That's like nearly 30, but compared to how many other songs did get the top charts, you know, it wasn't it, the, the hope and the love and the dreaming was a higher favored theme, which, duh, I get it. But yeah. um, we will start with um, our first patriotic song, and that is God Bless America. When I first started doing this research, I, I know with Vietnam, I kind of went in a chronological order of these songs and what year they came out. And I love doing chronological things. And I initially was going to go that way. But as I started diving in more, I broke it up differently. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to do this differently. So I started with God Bless America. And that was written by Irving Berlin. Then I was like, fuck it. We're going to go by artists. So I have highlighted about five different artists and we're going to go through their work. But these artists only didn't only provide the songs that represented the war and got our nation moving forward, like heavily. But all of these artists also did so much more as an entertainer, as a person. And what they contributed to the morale, the funding, the, these people are saints. Like I was really blown away from all of them. So that's kind of, you know, it's... I'm going to, we're going to look at their songs, but also what they did as an artist during the war to, to help and do their part. So, all right. God bless America. It was written in 38 and it became popular uh, with Kate Smith singing it. I lied. Sorry. It, it came out in 30. It wasn't written in 38, but Irving Berlin was asked to write something for Kate Smith patriotic. And he remembers like, wait, I have this song I wrote a long time ago that I stashed away. I'm going to bring it back out. This is the perfect time. And Irving Berlin said that his goal as a songwriter is my ambition is to reach the heart of the average American, that vast intermediate crew, which is the real soul of the country. My public is the real people. So with that in mind, you know, and I've already praised Irving Berlin as a songwriter in past episodes, but you can really feel like that's his whole intention and purpose in all of his songwritings. And it's really beautiful, you know. So let's rewind to 1918 when Berlin um, is stationed in Camp Upton in New York during World War I. And his commanding officer enlisted him to write a musical to raise money. And so he wrote the show Yip Yip Yapank. Yap, I always screw that up. Which is kind of a war-themed musical. And it raised a lot of money 
um, during that time. And that's where we get the first time we see the song, Oh, How I Hate to Get Up in the Morning, which did kind of revive itself into World War II. For those of you who don't know, I also want to apologize. I'm fighting a sinus infection, so that's why I'm a little snuffy. But um, the song is, Oh, How I Hate to Get Up in the Morning. Okay, I do know this one. Yeah. And it's a song about getting up in the barracks and you know it's time to get up it's time to get up it's time to get up in the morning and the guy's singing about how he hates the trumpet going off saying i gotta get up and i gotta go march and i don't i'm in the barracks i just want to sleep and so it kind of emphasizes that part of the army when he wrote the show he drafted god bless america but he cut it from the show so it was written and like i said it was shelved so two decades later he revisits and revives it and it becomes one of the biggest all time. It's still, you know, a huge anthem today. But um, something I thought that was really cool with that show, um, all the royalties then and still to this day go to the proceeds go to the Boys and Girls of America Foundation. So I was like, that's already setting how amazing Irving Berlin is. So, you know, it became an overnight sensation and grew with the war. And so then in 1942, Irving Berlin writes an entire new show. It's kind of based off his 1918 show, and he kind of re-brings it to now World War II. And he writes the show, This is the Army, which there's also the song, This is the Army. This is the Army, Mr. Jones. No private rooms or telephones. If you know, you had your breakfast in bed before, but you won't have it there anymore. Love that song. (laughs) So that song is the title of the show and comes from it. Um, so it's a Broadway show and it toured um, all the military bases all around USOs and overseas military bases until the end of the war. I believe Hawaii was its last run during the war. Um, all the proceeds went to army emergency relief fund. So by February 13th, 1943, it had earned $2 million, which now would be equivalent to $31,319,231. Jesus Christ. All right. (laughs) Um, I know. I know. Right. It's and Berlin toured with the show and he spent three and a half years away from his own family and he took no profit from this. So he worked touring for three and a half years with this show and they would have a cast of over 300 in this show and it was all men of service. So it's, I believe when they toured, they maybe like had a solid cast, but they would, when they were there, like bring in other people. And so if you hear the original recordings, even when it was on Broadway, they had, I believe it was a cast of 300 as well on Broadway. The recordings are cool. Cause you can hear it's, it literally is hundreds of army men singing the choruses and it, it really encaps, um, encapsulates the feeling of being on a base or being in a part of a, the, in the barracks and singing. And so I thought that was really cool, but it raised over $10 million. And again, he took no profit from this. And it in 1943, they adapted it to a successful movie. So that's really cool. And I, I believe those funds also went towards it. Going back, this is a little before that. Probably, well, this is the all-time, and we've talked about it before, number one single ever in music history to be sold. And so obviously this is going to be the number one song of World War II, written by Berlin in 1940, is White Christmas. Yep. Best-selling single of all time. (laughs) Of all times. And so it's, of course, you know, it's the timing. One day after he wrote it, Berlin told his secretary, I want you to take down a song I wrote over the weekend. Not only is it the best song I ever wrote, it's the best song anybody ever wrote. And I laughed. I was like, (laughs) normally, you know, people being that cocky, be like, psh. But he was right. I mean, it's the best, you know, single. And you look at Irving Berlin, he wrote this song in 1940. Well, it came out in 1940, but he, you know, wrote it around there. And He's been writing hits since 1911, I think, was Alexander's Ragtime Band was his first big hit. That's decades worth. I mean, he's produced thousands of top-selling Broadway shows, singles, jazz standards now. I mean, I think he's one of the most – in my opinion, he's one of the greatest songwriters of all time. Oh, for sure. And uh, hands down. And so I kind of give it to him. You know, this is his second – world war he served in the first he kind of has been he's been through the great depression he went through prohibition he was around before that like he knows a good song when he shit. hears it yeah he knows a good song and I, god damn it he can t- tell the world that he's the best if he wants to i reward him but um <laughs> so we all know the popular version of white christmas is being crosby and he was the first one to sing this it was on a radio show was the first public performance christmas day of 1941 just a few weeks after pearl harbor happens so I think it's also just so important, you know, the mood of the country. We just got attacked 
huge. And it, that's really in its Christmas. And so now we're sending boys overseas. People have lost family. And so you get this song, but it also, this song changed Christmas music. There was no market for a, a holiday song had never been on the charts before. They didn't think that was possible. And it's the first time we see a Christmas song that talks about the theme is like home and nostalgia and being together. And that didn't exist either before, you know, it was much more, I think, we three kings of yeah. Bethlehem. Yeah. And it's, it, there wasn't this, the holiday nothing, music we know now. Nothing has said Gelsey is Jewish more than her <laughs> thinking the lyrics are we three kings of Bethlehem. Oh my God. No, it's, what is it? <laughs> we three kings of Orient are. What? Oh my God. Whatever, Matt. I know the lyrics to White Christmas. That's much more important. No, Moving those on. are, trust me, the, the family Christmas songs are always better than the Jesus yeah. Christmas songs. This song is obviously not the number one song of all times, the number one song of the war. It's, you know, but it changed. No, during the holidays. I mean, I, during like September, there's radio stations that are like, and now we're only playing Christmas music. And it's, you know, all these things. And it started with this song. And so it was in the movie Holiday Inn, you know, he performed it on the radio and then it was introduced kind of more widespread through Holiday Inn. Um, by October of 1942, it topped the charts into the New Year's. It spent 11 weeks on the top Billboard charts and it resonated strongly with listeners during the war because, you know, everyone's overseas and, and during the holidays, it's what a hard time people are not with their loved ones. They wish they could be and blah, blah, blah. So it, you know, flooded the request of the Armed Force Networks. It won the best original song at the Academy of 1942. And then this is really sad that I got this quote. So Bing Crosby's nephew quoted this and it says, I once asked Uncle Bing about the most difficult thing he ever had to do during his entertainment career. He said it was in December 1944. He was in a U.S. show with Bob Hope and the Andrew Sisters. They did an outdoor show in northern France. He had to stand there and sing White Christmas with 100,000 GIs in tears without breaking down himself. Of course, a lot of those boys were killed in the Battle of Bulge a few days later. That really sits and Oof. just shows you what kind of people, you know, these entertainers are that <laughs> this is probably one of the last songs a lot of these boys heard. This kind of gives them at least that sense of home and hope and 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 they're crying and it's you know they're what a shitty thing I just I can't even put it into words and and he stands up there and holds himself together while a hundred thousand soldiers are all in tears because they just want to be home and they miss their loved ones and, and blah 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 so it's you know whoa which I'm going to go into brings us to our next artist is Bing Crosby himself okay Bing was 38 when the war started and he wanted to enlist, but the age I believe went to 44, but right when he wanted to enlist, they changed it to 35 being the cutoff age. So he was kind of embarrassed that he was too old to join because he wanted to do his part to serve his country. So when that happened, he was like, okay, I'm going to find what else I can do to help. So he spent 25 weeks touring with um, the USO in Britain, Belgium, France, he had sales of millions of dollars worth of war bonds and various war-based charities. He appeared in at least over 190 radio shows for service. Um, and at the end of the war, a poll was taken, and it found that the U.S. Trips, troops believed that Crosby had done the most to increase GI morale. So he really just took this whole wartime and hustled his ass off, entertaining the boys, producing songs, being on the radio shows that got then broadcast overseas into all the camps to do what he can to raise money, boost morale. And it worked. You know, he really was Mr. World War II USO. For those of you who don't know what he, the USO is kind of these setup. I thought I wrote it here. Hang on, we're going to cut this out. When I think of USO shows, obviously I've always known what they are, but if I'm trying to explain it to people, uh, a good mainstream examples, I always just say like Captain America, right? Like Captain America, the first Avenger movie, you basically got Cap doing these pseudo USO shows where it's totally. a stage with a bunch of soldiers and they're bringing out some of the biggest names at the time to raise morale, usually through like a it's like a pseudo vaudeville show almost for the troops. Yeah. The United States Organizations is an American nonprofit charitable corporation that provides live entertainment such as comedians, actors and musicians, so social facilities and other programs to members of the United States Armed Forces and their families. It was founded by FDR in February 4th, 1941. 
There we go. So anytime you you hear about an entertainer, and I'm going to talk about the USO a lot because they were set up, you know, oh, wow. worldwide. It's anyone that goes and entertains the troops 95% of the time. Because not always, but 95% of the time it's going to be through the USO. I never realized, like, I knew that stuff like Bing Crosby and Bob Hope and the Anderson sisters were you know, these iconic moments of the USO show, but based on the information you just gave, they were also kind of the original cast Mm -hmm. for lack of better word. I just Mm assume that the USO show has been around as long as the United States has been going to war, but Mm -mm. that that makes that all the more powerful to me to think. I I literally just thought, oh, there come some of the most famous examples Mm -mm. because of when they were doing it. I didn't realize they were the first. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, this is the first time we have USO shows and, and World War II is really the first time we're sending entertainers overseas to entertain the boys. And also, you know, the first time we're really pushing and I, I think radio has a huge well, radio plays a huge part in it of why I think it came to be, but also the first time that, you know, there's all these different things at home as well going on to raise money and get people to buy into war bonds. Um, which if you don't know what a war bond is, it's basically asking the US public to lend money to the government to then fund the war. Bing Crosby. So he kind of did a lot of Irving Berlin songs as that, but a few um, honorable mentions of his songs that were popular at the time. There's Swing on a Star, which uh, was in 1944 from the film Going My Way. Everyone knows it. Would you like to swing on a star? Carry (laughs) moonbeams home in a jar. And it's about skipping school. I first, you know, because if it's like, would you rather be a mule? A mule is an animal. And it's kind of... Um, the first time I was introduced to it as a kid was from the 1930s cartoon Little Lulu. Um, I I grew up with like, and I know we've said we're going to dive into old cartoons, and we are going to because I grew up on this shit. And Little Lulu was a cartoon from the 30s. Little Lulu. There's a whole episode where she plays hooky from school and goes to sleep, and there's this whole swing on a star segment. And I've seen this. I forgot and she's that like I've seen on this. On the pencil, jumping up, and she freaks yep. out. And so when she wakes up, she's like runs to school and it ends with her writing sentences on the chalkboard. I will not, you know, play hooky yep. again or something like that. And eventually I know we'll get to it sooner rather than later, but eventually we'll do a Looney Tunes episode. But Looney Tunes does tie really well into the music of World War II because obviously mm-hmm. if you pay close enough attention to the credits of Looney Tunes. Tunes is spelled with a U-N, not an O-O-N, because so much of it was based off of doing these animations to the music of that time. And you do get a lot of, I mean, when we talk about like the entertainment world really stepping up in patrioticness, like there's a ton of, you know, what are technically labeled propaganda films, which they are, they fit the definition of what a propaganda. I might have one saved for this episode that I'm going to mention actually. But, but yes, there, there's a, you know, they created a lot of Looney Tunes cartoons based on these patriotic songs to Mm -hmm. kind of also raise morale, raise a drive to get more war bonds and money. Yeah. 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 The entertainment industry really, really stepped up during this time. So a lot of, Bing Crosby's song, aside from White Christmas, which was a very, like, every eye is filled with tears. Um, you know, Swing on a Star is kind of a happy this, that. Um, he's got the song, I've Got a Pocket Full of Dreams, did very well. Again, it's that hope, it's longing, it's dreams. And then he toured a lot and did a lot of recordings with the Andrew Sisters. And so one of their most popular tunes, which reached number two on the charts in 1944, was Accentuate the Positive. You gotta accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative. Yeah, latch on to the affirmative. (laughs) I love that song. The Andrew Sisters have some awesome songs. Like, they really, well, truly do. Guess who's next? Because do you oh. see what I'm doing? Irving Berlin and then Bing Crosby wrote Irving. And I was like, it goes into Bing Crosby. And now, you. you've got Bing, Bing Crosby. He collaborated, I know, with Andrew Sisters. So, up next on deck, we have none other than the sweethearts of World War II themselves, the Andrew Sisters. We have Laverne, Maxine, and Patty Andrews. I was the biggest Andrews sister. I just want to tie this into the whole theme of the podcast being things we were obsessed with when we were younger, this, that I was probably no more than eight, maybe seven, probably around eight. I was lucky enough with my mom owning a dance studio that I just had a huge library of CDs and 
all this music in my hands. So I would just kind of like go into the studio sometimes and just like randomly grab a CD from the pile. CDs that sometimes like she didn't even know she owned. And this is one of them because one time we were in the car and I'm in the backseat, my parents are driving and my sister and I'd always just like hand a CD and just be like, just put this in. And they're like, whatever, the girls want to listen to this. So I hand them an Andrew sister CD and they're like, oh, okay. And I'm in the backseat and I sing every single word to every single song. And I think it's about like three songs in, like at the same time, my parents both just look slowly back and they're like how the hell do you know all this like you know every word to all these Andrew sister songs they're like where what like and I'm like I don't know I just I listen to these songs and they're like so you've been listening to this cd on your own and I'm like clearly I like something about them just drew me in at such a young age where I loved them and I I still listen to them to this day and um some of the songs I'm gonna hit and talk about are some of my favorites I, I just absolutely adore them. I actually, my first job uh, when I was at Disneyland, I was 16 going on 17 when I worked in parades, I had some time and I was like, I could get a breakfast serving job or something. So I went and applied and got a job at Ruby's Diner. I don't know if you have Ruby's Diner. We it's do. all like we do. 40s yeah. themed and they would always play Andrew's Sisters, Bing Crosby. There's Coca-Cola signs everywhere with these cute little uniforms. Of course, that's where I wanted to work. I only wanted to work there for the uniform. And then two weeks later, I quit because I was like, Fuck being a host. Are you a fan of young adult novels? Have you ever wondered the stories behind the people who wrote your favorite young adult novels? Then join author Eric J. Brown and Alyssa Lube of Netflix's The Circle every other Tuesday on YAOK. Available on all podcasting apps. Woo! Oh, it's not fun. It was awful. (laughs) Okay, anyways, getting back to the Andrew sisters. So they got big in 1937 is when they kind of started to get really popular and got huge. And then, of course, they remain huge during the war and become a huge poster child. And literally, they were dubbed the sweethearts of the Armed Force Radio Services. So their first song we're going to touch is none other than 1941's Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. It... (laughs) debuted in the film Buck Privates, which was in Abbott and Costello. Hey, Abbott! (laughs) I always hate that guy. Abbott and Costello. It was number six on the charts. And it's one of the first times, too, um, I've talked about Jump Blues before, and we will do an episode on that. But this is definitely leaning into a Jump Blues genre. So it's swing, it's boogie-woogie. The Andrew Sisters did a lot of boogie-woogie, but it's kind of that a little bit higher beat blues, not quite rock. And that's what, you know, where Jump Blues sits. So if you don't know what Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy is, or if you never heard the song before, literally pause this episode right now and listen to it. It Everyone's heard it. He was a famous trumpet man from out Chicago way. You know, you all know it. I was exposed to it from Bette Midler. I was going to say. Yeah, Bette Midler revived it in 1972 and it became a huge success. And so she kind of brought it back to life. But there's nothing better than there's a part of the song. One of the sisters, they kind of have little solo parts and she, she sings, you can't blow a note unless the basic guitar isn't with them. And it's like the best her like, Meh. I'm like, this is the greatest song ever. So Bed Mother's great, but you have to, my, my sinus infection singing, growling Muppet voice. It's great. That was a but, real Louis Armstrong version of that. It, no, listen, yeah. I'm, I'm not shitting you. Listen to the original. And that is exactly what she does. And I've always been, a female singer who likes to growl and go into the, you know, so I always, as a kid, loved it. And I would try to imitate her. It's their version. Just again, that's amazing. But the Andrew sisters, of course, are going to win it for me. So their next big hit or another one that was a huge theme of World War II um, in 1942 was Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree with Anyone Else But Me. And it was, um, <laughs> remained your hit parade. Well, remained your hit parade radio show. Oh, on, on the radio show, your hit parade, it was first place. And, um, from October, 1942 to January, 1943, it was the longest period for a war song to hold number one. So that's, this song was huge. And I love this song, by the way. I love this song too. It's so good. It's, it, it starts off really sweet. You know, they're like, I wrote my mommy, I wrote my daddy, and now I'm writing you to be sure. And I'm sure of mommy, I'm sure of daddy. Now I want to be sure of you. Don't sit under the apple tree with anyone no else but me. but me. And it, it ends with, till I come marching home. So basically, clearly the theme is staying true to your loved ones while they're away at war. 
Everyone's like, don't you fucking cheat on me or I'm going to be your piss. Cut your dick off. Yeah. No, sorry. I think we found your next, I think we found your next Delphi parody. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah, I should. This was the Andrew Sisters most requested song that they had. And so they, um, did a lot of, you know, USO tours in Africa, Italy, the U.S. They performed in war zones at hospitals. They encouraged the U.S. to buy bonds, I mean, along with everyone else. And then they helped um, Betty Davis and John Garfield, which I want to do a whole separate thing on this, but Betty Davis and John Garfield created something called the Hollywood Cantina in L.A. And it's an incredible, it's literally this bar cantina, and it was open and free to anyone in the service. So a lot of the men, because it was in Hollywood, would be traveling through Hollywood to then be shipped out to the South Pacific, where wherever they were going, Japan. And they were they had free entry, free food, free drink, and free entertainment. And so a lot of different entertainers would volunteer their time to, to perform there. But then a lot of movie stars would also volunteer their time to wait tables. There's a picture of Rita Hayworth waiting tables there. The girls would you know, dance with the boys. And it just was such an amazing, again, showing what entertainment did. And so I'm a huge Betty Davis fan. Um, I read her autobiography. And so when this all came to that part in the book, I was like, oh God, what? Like, it just makes me love them more. But um, the Andrew sisters performed there a lot and volunteered their time there. Uh, while they would tour, they would frequently treat three random servicemen to dinner when they would go out. And so that was kind of something they did a lot was Aww. anytime they would eat, they would, I know. And I thought that was really like, oh, so their next big hit, which was a huge hit of the war, was their 1945 hit Ramen Coca-Cola. One of my absolute hand down. I remember being eight years old. I was like, this is my favorite song. And actually, I think this is the reason that it led me when I started kind of like teenage drinking and I rum and coke was something I would I kind of started to in my younger years until I got into my like 20s and I was like I I do love rum but not um but I drank rum and coke because of this song like (laughs) I was like oh I'm like it's fine so it was a very controversial song though and a lot of radio stations wouldn't play it for a couple reasons one being that it mentions alcohol. So a lot of radio stations were like, nope, it name brands Coca-Cola. And so some were like, oh, that's iffy. But the most popular reason was it subtly suggests local women prostituting themselves to U.S. servicemen serving their time at the then naval base on Trinidad. Because it literally starts off, if you ever go down Trinidad, they make you feel so very glad. Native girls are dancing wild. Um, Guarantee of Big, 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 big smile, whatever. Serving rum and Coca-Cola. So the words literally are, since since the Yankee come to Trinidad, they got the young girls all going mad. Young girls say they treat them nice, make Trinidad like paradise. And another lyric is, both mother and daughter working for the Yankee dollar. So it literally is about <laughs> the women of Trinidad being prostitutes and very very yeah, different than don't don't sit under don't the sit under the tree. apple tree I know. and <laughs> there was a i forget which one of the sisters kind of had a quote um talking about this song she said that they were because there was a lawsuit with this song the original beat it's it's a calypso beat and so there was a folk calypso song that someone had written and someone at one point had heard it and they were like oh no this sounds too similar and so there was that kind of thing and but the girls didn't know they I think recorded this in, yeah, in under 10 minutes and they last minute, they recorded the song 10 minutes, became one of their hugest hits. It spent number one, seven weeks at number one. They faked their arrangements of their harmonies and everything she said. And um, again, I can't remember what sister said this, but she said they were so focused on it being kind of rushed and they just like heard the beat and they thought it was nice that they didn't think about the lyrics. She's like, we didn't realize really kind of what we were saying as, as far as, you know, the suggestiveness of it. And then she, they didn't know about the song being possibly copied. You know, they just were like, I don't know. Okay. And we got asked to record it. And so I do love that song. That's all three of those. I would highly recommend pausing this episode or after this episode, listening to those three Andrew sister songs. Cause I, would I ever steer you wrong? No, no, you haven't yet. All right. So where's the big connective yet. tissue from Andrew sisters, rum and Coca-Cola Two. Yeah. Okay. So I failed on this one. So there was okay, no connection well, here. It just kind of like and <laughs> close that page and, and here we open finally, a new book. <laughs> Next, we move on to we could not go into World War II and not recognize big bands and swing music. I mean, that is you know you, any wartime movie. This that it's big band was the heartbeat of it. And 
none other than Glenn Miller and his orchestra is who we're going to hit next. One of my all-time faves. Very much just scratching the surface here until we just do a full Glenn Miller episode because Glenn totally. Miller is and, and also on Big Band, so there's <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we have Duke Ellington, Artie Shaw, Benny Goodman. I mean, there's so many amazing orchestra leaders and they all have incredible songs that they've written um, and some of my favorites. So it's just too much to dive in. I had to pick one and I'm going to go with Glenn Miller. So, you know, he had the Glenn Miller Orchestra from 1938 to 1944 in the early 40s um, was his peak of popularity into the war. And he began touring military installations. In 1941, Glenn Miller started a radio program, the Glenn Miller Sunset Serenade. And he would do, I believe they had like different competitions and different people from different branches of the military. And he completely funded this radio station himself. It was like, thousand dollars a week or something. And I forget exactly what it was like, whoever, whatever branch won that week of the requested song or blah, 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 they would win like this new equipment for their station or this, that. And so it's, you know, it was a cool entertainment morale. Again, he's donating his time and money to, to the boys. Um, so he wanted to do more for the military. So the summer of 1942, he joins the U S army and becomes captain Glenn Miller. He leaves his Glenn Miller orchestra behind. And that's kind of the end of that when it's at the peak of popularity to join the military. And he becomes a director of bands and he forms the army air forces band, which is a 50 piece band. It was the largest band he'd ever conducted before. And they toured the U S and again, raised money for war bonds, blah, 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 blah. So Miller's music was, you know, used for morale, entertainment, and for propaganda. In Unfortunately, in 1944, in December, he was in UK with the band. They were rehearsing, playing for the boys there. He was supposed to fly from Bedford to Paris, and his plane disappeared. He's never been found. There's a lot of different theories on that, but one is that they think it was just too cold. The plane kind of froze over and, and was lost in the channel. So he was awarded the Bronze Star. You know, he did a lot for the war himself. I was really sad to read that. I, I wasn't actually aware of this. Yeah, I had him. no clue. And I have so yeah. many... Because, you know, lost. my grandfather loved Big Band, and I have so mm-hmm. many Glenn Miller songs. I had no clue that he had such a cut, short, tragic mm-hmm. end, which, again, we, we've we said before with the Beatles and CCR, the the amount of songs that are still active in the public conscience for a career that is so incredibly oh, yeah. short is short. unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I want to say Glenn Miller is one of the most, I mean, we still hear, I mean, his most popular song that's going to come to everybody's mind. And of course, is my first is In the Mood. Yeah. 1939. Everyone knows it. If you don't know it, trust me, you know it. I feel like any World War II movie you see, it's like, one of the first shots is this kind of aerial shot into a dance, either at a USO or the boys with their with their girls before they're about to ship off. And it's, you know, strung lights, a big band, and it's always in the mood. One of my all-time favorite songs ever. Um, so especially my favorite Glenn Miller song is Moonlight Serenade. It's just this beautiful, again, listen to it. I'm not going to try to sing these big band songs to you. So once he joins the Army and, and creates the Air Forces band, he produces a lot of those um some new songs with with that band that then get broadcast around. So um, over there, he's got a recording of that, which was written in 1917, but that was a popular wartime song again in World War II. It's over there, over there, spread the word, spread the word over there that the Yanks are coming, the Yanks are coming. You know, and it's, it won't be over till we're over, over there, something like that. Um, so that was a great one. And then in 1944, um, they come out with Peggy the Pinup Girl, which I, for some reason on my Apple Music, it like knows my iTunes plays Peggy the Pinup Girl at least once a week. So it's it's a really <laughs> cute song, um, but also kind of emphasizes the importance um, and the popularity of pinup girls, which we will do an episode on that because um, if you don't know, I do some pinup modeling myself. But um, <laughs> And then there's, there's a really cool, if you kind of want the whole package and feel and idea of what this Air Force band was and um, a radio broadcast show, what it sounded like. There's a really cool, it's I think on the Essentials album of Glenn Miller, you, it's really easy to find on, on iTunes, but there's um, a recording and they do the Londonary Air mixed with Shoo Shoo Baby, The Way You Look Tonight and The Beautiful Blue Donnaby, 
Danaby or whatever. And it's an actual, they're like, all right, next up we sing, you know, for the women. Shoo, shoo, baby. And it's this real, it, the whole thing is the recorded broadcast and it, it just captures a radio show. So I definitely highly recommend that recording, which mixes all those songs together. It's, it's really awesome. And did I say for the ladies out there? Because speaking of lady, oh, next up is the first lady of song. Our last and final is Ella Fitzgerald. Beautiful segue. It's almost like you had <laughs> written it out and had prepped yourself. I didn't. I actually it. didn't. I just saw the two and I was like, wait, I just said lady and I wrote lady there. Perfect. I'm a genius. I just want to throw real quick before we get to Ella, because I do love Glenn Miller. Like I said, we'll do a full episode. I am positive. But also some some other ones that you probably know and don't realize you know. Uh, we already said in the mood, but also Pennsylvania 65000, Chattanooga <laughs> Choo Choo, and the Bugle yeah. Call Rag are all... Uh, pretty mm-hmm. well-established classic sounds of the 30s and 40s uh, that you just might not have a name that you can place to it if you're not just really Chattanooga into big choo-choo, band. Won't you won't you yeah. choo-choo me home, Chattanooga, Chattanooga, <laughs> <all> <laughs> I'm talking. You definitely listen- missed your calling. There's never, oh, God, talk about before my time, you were born to be in a 1940s USO show. I know. I'm like, God, I want to tour in the USO and just be like, hello, boys. Like, moving <laughs> on, Ella Fitzgerald. So Ella Fitzgerald, um, touching really, but she got her claim to fame in um, the Apollo she was homeless by 17, I believe right before then she lost her mother. She's pretty much orphaned, kind of comes from, it's a rags to riches story. So in 1938, she really rises to fame with her version of the nursery rhyme, A Tisket, A Tasket, which, A Tisket, A Tasket, I lost my yellow basket. Funny story, because it's A dash, my iTunes, I have this song on my library. It is the first song. And so every fucking time I get in my car and I plug my phone in, it restarts iTunes and just plays my whole library from the vis. Like, so every time I get in my car and I plug my phone in, it's That's a so when I read that, I was like, oh God, like I love that song, but I'm so over it because every time, but she was 21 years old when that came to be, it was number one. Huge. In August of 1941, hundreds of copies were requested of her version of The Muffin Man um, to be shipped to London to raise spirits of British citizens that were all in public bomb shelters, you know, waiting out the terrible blitzkriegs and the, you know, terrible. So it's kind of already she's before even the U.S. is getting involved. She's such a musically inspirational part of the war overseas to the U.K. citizens. She did, you know, tour in the USOs, but it's kind of an interesting different and why I wanted to touch on her. It's kind of represents this whole area of entertainment. There's still, you know, she suffered from discrimination and segregation. And even though she's touring for the war for the U S it's still something that was huge in the forties. Um, the USOs did for, they forbade discrimination, but most USOs, um, were segregated and that's because they kind of just where they were stationed, they didn't want to mess with whatever local club was associated with them. And so unfortunately it's a sign of the times. The USO and African-Americans created 375 separate clubs for African-American servicemen. So they started creating their own clubs and shows. Um, some black performers did distance themselves from the USOs because of this reason. And they didn't like that, but it was, it was, you know, it was already so many travel difficulties with the war going on for any performer but it's specifically for black performers that, you know, like Ella would have gone through is there's hotel bands. A lot of the hotels they couldn't even stay at. The train cars were in segregation. So there were white cars, black cars. One time Ella Fitzgerald was on a train through Washington, D.C., and she had stood for hours because in the quote-unquote colored car, there were no seats. So she went and sat in a whites-only train. She's like, fuck this. And the conductor stops the train and tries to remove her, but a bunch of white sailors intervened and insisted she sat with them, which I thought was a really cool story. Oh, I like that. I do too. I, you know, I was reading this and I was just like, geez, it's like, okay, it's already war. It's already, you know, you forget that everything is happening at once in history. And, you know, so here she is trying to do her part and, and get around and, and it's, she's having to deal with her own war, but she had a lot of hit songs, you know, none that specifically, she kind of had the more dreamful, romanticized, hopeful side of, of music. And instead of like, you know, the Andrew sisters are much more that patriotic, everything's very marching. And, um, so she, when she was on tour, she 
toured and recorded a lot with a group called the Ink Spots, who were a jazz quartet kind of so good so good so in 1944 they come out with cow cow boogie which was number 10 on the charts and it was number one on the r&b charts i listened to all these last night and i was like these are great like sets the thing that's so cool about this is all three of these songs that i'm going to mention from ella fitzgerald are so different and it really then starts to go into music history of where all these different genres are starting to bleed into each other but they're so such different sounds, which is so cool. And then in 1944, she records I'm Making Believe. So, you know, we have Cow Cow Boogie's also, you know, fun, but I'm Making Believe is, again, even just the title, hopeful. It um, first appears in the film Sweet and Lowdown, um, originally written by Benny Goodman. Oh, no, performed by Benny Goodman, sorry. But it's Longing for a Lover. The song is kind of theme, Longing for a Lover. That's, he's far, she's alone. So that's a very clear, huge theme of the war. Another song, which was... The B-side to I'm Making Believe is Into Each Life, Some Rain Must Fall. And that did hit number one as well. And another great song. Also, you know, both of these, I believe, were with the ink spots. So it has to do with, obviously, love and this, that. But even if you just take the title, Into Each Life, Rain Must Fall, it's kind of that acceptance of dark shit happens, bad times happen, it's part of life. And, you know, it's going to resonate a lot during a wartime And then in 1945, I just wanted to put out that, you know, the war is coming to an end and the song um, that gets to number five is I'm beginning to see the light. I'm beginning to see the light. And that's kind of like a hopeful, the clouds are parting. And I thought that just the timing of when that got on the charts, I was like, oh, that makes sense. It was written originally by Duke Ellington, who I did mention earlier, in 1944. And I think, yeah, it's a nice little... But, oh, here's my connection. Going back to Bing Crosby, um, Bing Crosby said, man, woman, or child, Ella is the greatest of them all. And I think that says a lot for, you know, he's an incredible singer. And she really just was something else and created a whole different style once she kind of got out of her novelty, nursery rhyme kind of songs and found her more jazz, scatting um it, it just blew up and she became the head of her own band. She was in a band and the band leader passed. And so it became Ella Fitzgerald in the orchestra, you know, so it, that was a huge thing. But anyways, I don't go too much into her. So yeah, those are um, all the ones I got into. But I did have one honorable mention okay. because it's you and me, Matt. And I was like, I can't not mention this song. And so this isn't just a person. It's just one honorable mention of a song because there were a lot of propaganda songs as well. There were some like titles that I didn't even feel comfortable saying because they're very like the slurs and slangs against the Japanese, whatever. It, can, I was like, can hmm. I make a guess? Can I make a You're guess? You're going to guess it. Yeah. Is it Defure's face? Duh. <laughs> of course it's Defure's face. I had to give this an honorable mention. Uh, it came out in 1942 and was popularized in 42 by Spike Jones, who we have talked about before but um originally i thought this was interesting it was written by oliver wallace who worked for disney and he wrote the music for dumbo peter pan and alice in wonderland and it hit number three november 7th it was the most popular wartime song and because of its success it actually led to disney making a short they had a lot of war propaganda cartoon shorts and so there is a short and i watched it last night with donald duck called Defear's Face. And I recommend, it's like four minutes, everyone stop what you're doing and watch it because there is something so great about watching. It's kind of a Donald Duck wakes up in a Hitler Germany Nazi, you know, he has to work for them, put bullets on and it's a nightmare and he wakes up and then he's in the US and it's kind of this undertone theme of like, be thankful to be in America um, during this time. But he's on a conveyor belt and he's putting the tops on bullets and different things. And Defear's face is playing in the background and there's a band playing it. And um, on the conveyor belt in between, all of a sudden, there's all these portraits of Hitler. And every time one goes by, he's like, hail Hitler, hail Hitler. But it's Donald Duck, like, Hitler. I can't do the voice. I don't know. There was something just so I was like, this is gold because this is just crazy. You never would think. But, you know, because it's in the theme of it's kind of satire, propaganda, it totally works. I talked in a previous episode about how my sister and I had a Dr. Demento floor show that we would frequently 
perform in my house. Um, this was well, this song by Spike Jones was on the bill, and so listening to the song, I was like, oh, I remember my choreography to it. But as a kid, I didn't know what it was talking about. I didn't no, it's know just a what, weird noise. Like oh, it was like, a hilarious noise. Like the yeah. it sounded like a. Like yeah. Barton, we did little like yeah funny things, and I remember. And it wasn't until older. I think my sister was like, "Oh, do you know what this is about?" And I was like, "No," and and whatever. So that's funny. So yeah, I used to dance around to this song in my living room. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So that that is the music of World War II. Obviously, there's so many. You know, we can't hit every song and every artist. There were so many amazing, incredible entertainers and musicians. So many amazing songs. But um, I thought that these songs and artists really captured the feel, the morale, the backbone, the heartbeat of the war. And they also themselves as entertainers were ones that did so much for the war. And I, you know, learning more about them, I just grew my respects for them. And I was like, I love them all. Hi listeners, I'm Carolina. And I'm Tessa. And together we are Femme Regard Podcast. Mm, Femme. We are a show dedicated to educating and entertaining underdeveloped filmmakers and film enthusiasts alike. We love sharing our experiences as filmmakers, what we've learned and what we've gone through. And we love bringing on professional industry guests. We want our listeners to learn from the best and get an honest account of the biz. So come join the FemFam and give us a listen every Friday. Streaming on all the major podcast platforms, including YouTube and our website, femregard.com. And of course, the Geekscape Network. All right. So, Gelsey, I've got a really tough question for you. I I almost feel bad how difficult of a question I'm going to throw to you. I already hate you. You focused on five specific artists in Mm -hmm. World War II. Mm -hmm. If we could only give one of them a special episode... Who would be the one that you would choose? <laughs> that is so awful. You keep know what? Being, keep in mind, you and I are both very well aware that all five of them will eventually get their own spotlight episode. But just because, just because of the amount, uh, Irving Berlin. Okay. Okay. Hands down, Irving Berlin, because there's so much content there. But I, I already dubbed him the greatest songwriter. Of all times. It's like, how can I not? I mean, that goes into just like classic jazz standards and hit Broadway shows that turn into hit MGM musicals. I mean, we've already did an episode on White Christmas alone, and I know I want to do more of like, yeah, I can't, you know. Okay. No, I think that that's fair. I weirdly, I think I would have agreed with you until we started talking about Glenn Miller Orchestra because I'm like, man, that's. I know. Because I almost feel like of all of the people you named, him or Andrew sisters are the least um, talked about in a modern landscape mm-hmm. now where it's like, Oh, that mm-hmm. could be interesting. Cause it's something that like no one, I don't hear people talk about those two particular artists, the way that there is still a lot of mainstream love and respect for Berlin's music and what mm-hmm. Bing Crosby and Ella Fitzgerald did, but it does kind of feel like, Glenn Miller and the and the Andrew sisters are kind of more like if you're in the know, you know, type artists. Gelsey, if there's someone listening that said, y'all are both crazy, you should focus on a Bing Crosby episode or an Ella Fitzgerald episode. Where can they go and tell us their opinions on who should get their own spotlight episode in the future? Yeah. Yeah. Please tell us your opinions on Facebook. Just search before my time. We will pop up right on our wall. Be like, hey, I vote Bing Crosby or whoever you vote for. And on Instagram, we are at before my time underscore podcast. DM us, like our post, send a comment. And you know what I'm going to ask for. It do your part, ladies and gentlemen, and support the war with your war bonds, aka a five star rating. Yay! Give us a rating, and if you have an extra time, put in a little comment. Just be like, Kelsey and Matt are fucking nuts, but that's why we love them. It really uh, means a lot to us, and we appreciate it. And we also appreciate each and every one of you for tuning in every week. It seriously makes my heart melt and explode all at once. So thank you, and I'm excited to see you all next week. Toodles.
You're listening to the Geekscape Network. Are you a fan of young adult novels? Have you ever wondered the stories behind the people who wrote your favorite young adult novels? Then join author Eric J. Brown and Alyssa Lube of Netflix's The Circle every other Tuesday on YAOK. Available on all podcasting apps. Woo! You're listening to the Geekscape Network.